1: Hello, Husker fans. Welcome to episode 219 of the Husker Football Fan Podcast. I'm Mike Harvat. Today, we interview longtime Omaha World Herald reporter and columnist Dirk Chaitlin. You can find us on the web at huskerpod.com or by searching Husker Football Fan Podcast on Facebook. You can also connect with us on Twitter by following at huskerpod or email us at huskerpod at gmail.com. This episode is brought to you by Central Nebraska Buffalo. Check out their website for the latest deals, cnbuffalo.com. We're also brought to you by Monty Rohde with Pinnacle Realty in Lincoln. Looking to buy or sell a home in Lincoln or know somebody who is, hit up Monty at 402 770
0: 3356. Well, we are really excited to have Dirk Chaitlin here with us from the Omaha World Herald. Dirk, welcome to the Husker Football Fan Podcast. It's an honor to be with you guys. Uh, well, pleasure's ours. Um, I guess first thing I wanted to ask, how long have you been
2: covering the Huskers? My first year as a student reporter was 2002. Oh, um, wow. I covered a couple games in 2001, I think. But, uh, the first year that I was really on the beat as a student reporter was Oh two, which, you know, coincidentally is, is when the fall began. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then my, my first year at the world Herald was 2005. So, um, I've, I've seen almost the entirety of the dark times, um, Yeah, and, and some might say that I'm responsible for the dark times, but, but I think, you know, I think, you know, more reasonably it's, uh, it was just coincidental. I, I grew up, you know, grew up in the state and was sort of my formative years were, were basically the peak of the program. So I, I'm not sure that's a coincidence either. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when you, when you're, 13 14 15 years old and and the team that you follow is winning national championships it sort of leaves a profound impact on you and and i'm sure that that was in some ways related to my uh to my pursuit of sports writing sure so yeah
0: i guess it's interesting to hear you are of the same kind of general vintage as as mike and me so we're in a similar demographic here as far as growing up with the huskers being awesome and like so what's your first husker memory then
2: I remember, um, I remember the 1987 Oklahoma game, which was oh, one, one versus two. Um,
0: good for you. I, I do I don't remember 80s football.
2: Okay, I started going to games in probably oh 87, 88, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously, you know, most of my memories are in the 90s. Um, and you just, you know, I'm sure like you guys, you just looking back you just took that stuff for granted i mean i woke up every morning and you know every sunday morning or monday morning and you know checked where nebraska was in the rankings and it was uh you 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 start every season with with a realistic shot at a national championship and uh, and you just mourn those losses i mean i still remember the 1999 texas loss down in austin and uh and i just I just like walked around the neighborhood for like, you know, an hour. It was just like this, this feeling of agony. Um, You know, in those days you, you had to, you had to be undefeated to have a real chance. And um, when that loss came that basically signaled that it wasn't going to happen this year, uh, man, that was devastating. Saban has had amazing teams, but he's also had a little bit of a institutional advantage there as far as the structure of the playoff, but that's not what we're here to talk about. No, you're right. It's uh, it, it, it has changed. I mean, I, I'm not sure fans, you know, even at Ohio state and Alabama, um, you know, can relate to, I mean, I'm sure the older ones can, but, but there was really a, there was a sense back in those days that you had to be perfect. You know, sometimes you got lucky and, and you got sort of a second chance, but I think it's, uh, it's notable that Nebraska's five national championships you know they never lost a game all perfect uh, and look at look at in contrast Alabama, which uh with all their national championships under statement, I think they only have two undefeated teams, so uh it really has changed over time when you uh when you were getting up in the morning to check check where Nebraska was rated were you checking the world herald yeah no that's uh I was <laughs> I would say the guys that I read the most, you know, Lee Barfneck, Tom Chattel, uh, Stu Pospisil, Those are the guys that I went on and worked with, and uh, still work with a couple of those guys. So, you know, I my ex- my experience is pretty small. I, I haven't necessarily seen the world. Uh, I've worked at a couple other different outlets when I was in college and internships, but but I'm kind of a kind of a lifer here and an institutionalist and um, sort of have one foot in the old world, uh, and one foot, you know, in the new world, which is Mm. obviously social media and blogging and, you know, podcasting and all that stuff. But, uh, for, for being as, as relatively young as I am, I am kind of an old soul when it comes to this stuff. Well, yeah, I was going to say you're an institutionalist, uh, by your description, you're also an institution. I mean, everybody just associates your name with the paper and Husker football. Uh, well, that's nice of you to say that. Uh, absolutely. it's, it's um, you know, there really is a, a huge interest that I don't think has changed a whole lot in 20 years. I think in some ways, um, I don't think the intensity is as, is as wide as it used to be, um, but it's still pretty comparable. I mean, for a program that really hasn't done anything in uh, 19 years now, uh, it's pretty extraordinary, the, the fan base, you know, and the intensity of the fan base, even after all this time. Do you think so, – so in your time covering, have you seen
0: – does that press conference room get more and more full? Like, are there more people covering?
2: It has just because of the the internet element to it. Um, you know, I, I, I've heard lots of stories from Lee Barfnecht and Tom Chattel about, you know, back in the 90s even, there would only be four or five people at a football practice. Um, and now there's probably – 40 or 50 um mm-hmm. in in non-covid years. So <laughs> mm-hmm. um you know the internet has really changed things. It's um there there's so many more outlets that cover the the program on a daily basis. The 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 byproduct of that though is that nobody gets nearly as close to the program as they did 20 or 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think uh it you know you really appreciate um the guys who can sort of, sort of carve out um, a place of insight and information and you know real knowledge in this environment because it's harder. I mean, back in those days, you know, those guys just went to practice. I mean, they just uh, they they had relationships with coaches and you know sometimes they would they would maybe overly protect a source um, mm-hmm. or you know not not shoot straight uh because they were protecting the program but but they were close to the program and now it's much different you know the program is is much more on an island where (laughs) um the media is 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 at arm's length and i think (laughs) in some ways that's good because the media i think in some in some outlets anyway is can you know it frees them up to be a little bit more honest um but the downside is just that you know there's 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 a less complete picture or you know not as much um, not as much I, I guess genuine knowledge of what's happening inside the walls uh, as there used to be. Was there a point where you really noticed
0: that transition where you thought, "Hey, we think something's changed here," just in the last twenty years?
2: Well, I think. Um, I think it was probably in the, the Callahan era. Um, I mean, I remember not to go old old on you, but Nebraska football used to have a Sunday morning film study that I was I was old enough to, to remember this, where you know assistant coaches, even as late as two thousand one two thousand two, uh, you would go into Milt Tenner's office or you know Craig Bowles' office on a Sunday at eleven o'clock after every game and there'd be like a little film study um you know they you wouldn't necessarily be part of the film study but but he would answer questions and um i remember you know watching film with milk teniper it was like wow. you know and and now there's just there's nothing comparable to that i think again i don't necessarily glamorize or glorify those days because i think that it it shaped uh, coverage in a way that wasn't always positive. You know, a lot of times the media knew a lot about what was going on, but they weren't necessarily sharing that with with readers or consumers. So, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, you know, in some ways it's good because the media is able to they know that they know what's what's happening and the real truth. Uh, the bad news is they they can't necessarily relay that to the consumer. So, uh, is that, is, I think. I think in this era, and again, I think it changed sort of in the Callahan years uh, with, the, with the, on, you know, the onset of more internet media. Um, but, but now, you know, <laughs> I feel like I can, I can sort of call it as I see it with, uh, without much concern about, you know, an assistant coach who isn't going to talk to me anymore, oh, um, you know, where that would have been a bigger concern 20 years ago. So I was,
0: I was going to say is that about protect truly protecting the program, or is it about access? And it sounds like you know that
2: if you if there are a few reporters and you had good access, yeah, and- access is a access in all media is is kind of a double edged sword. I, I really am amazed by not to get off topic here, but I don't know how they make it work like in Washington D.C., where you know I will I will consistently read articles. About you know what's happening in the West Wing, and the articles will just blast everybody you know in the in the story or in the West Wing, and it's like I don't know how you maintain positive relationships or access to those people, you mm-hmm. know, when you're putting it on putting them on blast every week. Um, so you know that's that's something that journalists sort of have to to treat delicately. I mean, you know, I think in in some cases you can almost read between the lines and see what's happening um i have i have sort of just organically taken more of a path of uh i'm going to be outside i'm not going to worry as much about sources or you know who who can give me the information if i lose if i lose out on the information because i'm being hard on the program uh so be it, but I'm gonna try to be as honest and truthful in the way that I see it as possible. And I think you don't want everybody at your media outlet operating that way. I, I think you know you, you need people who are sort of a little bit more good cop. Um but I have preferred and and maybe it's a lazy way out. Uh I, I have preferred to just say <laughs> sort of plant my flag as, as, you know, I'm going to try to try to write it as the fans see it. Um, And, you know, it's, it's sometimes served me well, sometimes it probably hasn't, but I, it's, it's sort of my natural personality to do that too. Are there any things you've, you've planted your flag
0: on that people really didn't agree with at the time, but have come around on?
2: Well, I think a lot of things during the Polini era, Um, you know, I think the, some of the Taylor Martinez stuff that was, was really controversial back then, um, certainly, you know, Polini's personality and sort of the abrasive nature of his, uh, coaching style and the way that he handled fans, you know, some of that stuff was, was pretty difficult, um to be critical of back then. And it has gotten much easier to be critical of in hindsight. So um, I think that's probably the best example. And, you know, it's, it's going to be tough with Frost. If, if Scott Frost keeps struggling um, and I don't know, I don't have a great feel for whether this thing's going to turn around or not. I think it's very much up in the air, uh, but it's, it is going to be very awkward uh, in the media world because, you know, there's there's a, a pretty significant portion, I think, of of the fan base that is that is going to ride with Scott Frost uh, until the, the last days, uh, no matter what. Um, and so I think, you know, because of his success here, because of his pedigree, because of his connections, um, it's. It is, it is hard to be critical, and it's going to be hard to be critical if it continues on the path that it's going. I don't think anybody's hoping for that. Um, sure, sure. I certainly am not, but uh, but it's just the reality.
1: I think you will see a highly divided fan base this year if there is not a significant improvement from Nebraska. I just I, – I you know, even – this, this past week um, we did a kind of a round table discussion with two other podcasts and that, ju- that kind of just seems to be the attitude of people is like, this is the make or break year coming up for Nebraska with Scott Frost.
2: You know, I, I think, I mean, I, I've tried to reflect on this and, and I think that this, this third year was really a a punch in the gut because I feel like as long as there was some level of progress, People you know could say well it's it's moving slower than we expected, but at least it's still progressing um, this This third year was clearly not progress, and um you know i mean the the, the record was was under five hundred again and and I've said this several times, but i mean if if Nebraska loses to Rutgers, which very well could have happened you know i think I think Nebraska on paper would have been the worst team in the big ten, uh, which is just pretty jarring, considering the the expectations when this whole thing started so but but i agree with you i think you know it's again i i I draw a lot of political parallels and it, it really does sort of a lot of this stuff the bickering in the fan base kind of echoes the the political division that we see in our country right now and it's just like it's almost like you know people identify where they are at the start and it doesn't matter what the facts say they are sticking with their position um and I certainly felt that way during the Polini era. And and I think it's, you know, obviously Frost is is less polarizing as a personality, um, but I think because of his success, you know, it, it creates new complications in trying to sort of measure the program objectively, uh, probably as hard as it's been in 20 years to find people that, that can really sort of put their heart on the side or their feelings on the side and, and look at this thing objectively. And and I would put myself in that camp too. I mean, you know, I, I was there the day that Scott Frost got hired and and I saw the reception to him and I saw the, the former players, you know, basically give him a a big hug. And uh, it's, it's pretty hard to imagine, you know, based on those scenes three years ago, that this thing wasn't going to work out. So, um, you know, it's, it's too early to too early to make those conclusions, but I think it is going to get awkward if Nebraska doesn't make a big jump in 2021. Do you think this is the kind of a goofy
0: question uh, in the conversation? Mike just referenced we were joking that like that act of God with the Akron game. It's like the butterfly effect. If that game happens and we win, we beat Colorado. Yeah, yep. we have a positive outlook. It just we're in a whole different place. Half joking, but like how much uh, of an effect do you think that had?
2: Yeah, and and I think I guess the the funny part of that is. For so long, throughout that year and even into the next year, to some degree, um, there was sort of this sense of like, okay, this hasn't started well, but we're going to catch up, right? It's like, it's like giving your, you know, it's like giving your slower, younger sibling a head start in a race around the neighborhood. It's like, well, um, that Akron game was like stopping to tie my shoe, and then the Colorado game was like, you know, tripping over a piece of the sidewalk and falling down. And pretty soon you're like two blocks behind and it's like, Whoa, wait a second. We're not actually going to catch up. Um, And I feel like the, the losing, I don't know if like the, the actual record is, is a huge, I mean, you know, they went four and eight. Okay. That was bad, but was four and eight, a whole lot different than six and six. I mean, that was kind of the argument after year one. It's like, what's, what difference does a couple of losses make? And then the next year it was like, okay, well they didn't finish well, but you know, what difference does it really make whether you're five and seven or, or six and six. And, and I think at some point it just, it sort of just creeps into the culture. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. it, it it gets into the walls um, where, you go through some of that stuff and it affects your confidence. It affects your, you know, sort of your, I don't know, your chemistry in some sense. It's just been a, it's been a weird thing how starting off on the wrong foot um, has really just kind of uh, just kind of, you know, fed on itself. And, and I don't know it's hard to change that. I mean, it's when, when everybody in the program is used to losing, I mean, we're talking about four consecutive losing seasons. Imagine saying that even 10 years ago, you guys. I mean, it it would be insane to say that even 10 years ago. Um, And yet here we are, and I think it just becomes hard to get out of that cycle. Long sigh here. You know, and and let me say one more thing, because I think this is important. Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska is not like a very – natural place for a lot of these guys to go to out of college you know it's it's hard it's hard for a kid from texas or florida or california or even ohio uh to say i want to i want to go to lincoln you know i want to go to college there it's it's easy easier uh if you know, you're going to win nine or 10 or 11 games and you're going to get a, a, you know, a conference championship ring at the end of the process. And you're going to play on national TV and, and, you know, it's the perks for decades made it worth the sacrifice for those guys to mm-hmm. do that. And now that there's no perks at the end of it um, or no rewards, I think it is, it's just harder for a guy like Wandale Robinson to say, yeah, I want to go there. You know, it's like, uh, it's just not a very natural place to go. It's, you know, let me use another clunky metaphor. It's like when you're on the interstate and, and, you know, the, the interstate exit says that the the restaurant that you're thinking about stopping at is, is three miles, three miles off the interstate. Well, that restaurant better be pretty darn good if you're going to drive three miles off the interstate. I'm not stopping for that restaurant. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's, there has to be rewards for these guys uh, to come to Nebraska. And again, when you sort of get out of that cycle, then it becomes kind of a chicken and an egg thing. Right. It's like, how do we, how do we get these guys to come here? We're not going to win unless they come here. uh, But we're, you know, we can't get them to come here unless, unless we win. It's like, man, it's, There's a reason that losing programs don't just magically start winning again. I don't know
1: why, but you guys have me thinking about this big bridge that was built over the interstate where you got to drive like three miles out of the way just to get to it. I've never been to that bridge.
0: (laughs) I went through once. How was it? Uh, It was a while ago. There is now a bridge much closer, but it kind of blocks the view of it. So that's kind of ironic, too.
2: Anyway. Uh, I, <laughs> I I I won't promise that I won't use that clunky metaphor in the future um, because, you know, I'm, I'm definitely prone to a clunky metaphor, but it's, you don't uh, even have to cite it to us.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's, it's just been a, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I, I feel like I definitely feel the slippery slope of expectations where it's mm. like, you know, Five years ago, if if Nebraska had just done some of the things that it did this last year, people would be, you know, would be irate. And 10 years ago, they would have been, you know, they wouldn't have been able to sleep. And 15 years ago, you know, they, they would have been emailing the athletic director. I mean, it's – and now it's just like, well, oh, this is sort of who they are, whatever. Mm-hmm. What are we doing tomorrow, you know, for lunch? It's just like uh, – <laughs> it's just weird how how this stuff happens so slowly this sort of slow erosion of you know the standards um i think it's one of the reasons it's so hard for former players you know it's like these guys that won national championships they look at what's happening and it's like they don't even recognize it anymore it's like this this team can't even you know put together a 10-point drive without fumbling or you know getting called for holding and Man, if you're on a big – you know, if you were on a Big 12 championship team and you're watching this, it's uh, it's like night and day.
1: I think that's really interesting that you say that because I hadn't considered – it was very easy this year for me to just kind of excuse the entire 2020 season, right? Yep. Because, like, oh, the pandemic and oh, this and that. But, I mean, other teams didn't let that be an excuse, you know, they still excelled in 2020, but this year, just because of the trajectory that Nebraska has been on, it was very easy for me to say, oh, we got to put an asterisk next to everything in 2020. And then next year, next year is when I'm going to be objective in how I perceive the, the trajectory of where Nebraska going. I don't know. I, I just, that's, that's a really interesting point. I think that I, I was not considering how easy it's been for me to be like, ah, twenty twenty doesn't matter. Next year, let's let's really, you know, turn the screws and 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 put the, you know, put, put Scott Frost's feet to the fire if things don't change.
2: Well, it's a great point. And I think in some ways your your thought process, which is similar to mine, is Is justified. I mean, there were more important things going on in the world. You know, I mean, it's just it's just the reality. I mean, when you're in the middle of a pandemic that's killing thousands of people every day, um, you probably shouldn't be as as obsessed with, you know, Adrian Martinez's completion percentage (laughs) in another year. Uh, But as you said, everybody was going through that, and I mean Iowa State they lost to Louisiana by like 17 points on the first Saturday of the season. They gave up like two kickoff returns for touchdowns. And, you know, three months later they're winning the Fiesta bowl. So, um, some programs found a way to get through it. Uh, not everybody did it the way to Nebraska or, or Michigan or Penn state did it. So, uh, I think it's at, at some point, Nebraska has to seize the opportunity, um, and exceed expectations and, and, Man, I mean, this is almost a—I take no joy in asking this question, but when is the last time Nebraska exceeded expectations in a mm-hmm. season? <laughs> I mean,
1: not, not since we've been doing this podcast. Certainly not. We started <laughs>
2: Riley's first year. I mean, it's probably <sighs> exceeded expectations. I See, don't I know was, if that
1: happened during Polini.
2: I would say probably 2008 Bo's first year, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when Nebraska got off to a, I mean, they were coming off five and seven or whatever. And they were, they had a really rocky start uh, in in Polini's first year. And then they finished strong. I I, I mean, I think it's been 12 years since my, my mind went to uh, Polini's first, his, his one year stint as defensive coordinator. Yeah. Uh, That's where my mind went. I think that's, Yeah, that's another that's another good one. There just are not very many seasons over the last 20 years where where fans got to the end of it and said to themselves, yeah, that was fun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's hey, let's let's switch gears just here for a second. What Dirk? Tell us the difference between a columnist and a beat reporter.
1: Should we put this up front at the very beginning of the podcast? I'm just, no, I don't think no, so. I'm kidding. <laughs>
2: um, well, I think they've, they've become more similar over the last 10 years. Um, hmm. you know, let's, let's look at some of the national outlets. For instance, you used to, um, you used to go to ESPN or used to, you know, go to ESPN.com and, and there would be a clear columnist designation, um, and, you know, more of a reporter label at the top of a story. And it was pretty clear, even in the first couple paragraphs, whether there was, you know, the story was, was opinion or not. Um, and I think, you know, those boundaries were pretty rigid. They have, they've have since, uh, sort of, you know, there's much more of a gray area, um, and I don't necessarily think that's bad. You know, I think the thing that columnists really need to understand, you know, young columnists especially, is you have to do um, just as much reporting, if not more reporting, you know, in column writing than you do in beat reporting. Um, but I think it, there's much more of a, of a desire for, for insight, um, for analysis, and that doesn't necessarily have to be opinion analysis. I mean, it can be, uh, you know, Sam McEwen, for instance, does a, a Monday rewind on Omaha.com every week. I guess technically it's an opinion. Uh, it's a column. Hmm. There, there are often opinions, you know, in those 2000 words, but but it's really beat writing too. It's it's sharing what you know about the program. So I think it's uh it's changed pretty dramatically I, I don't know if it's you know changed in a bad way. I realize that some it's it's become kind of uh cliche for people to to lament the the over opinion in their in their media coverage but but I think in the sports world it's often a good thing i'll use um I'll use I'm an NBA guy. So I'll use I'll use a guy at ESPN named Zach Lowe as an example, or Brian Windhorse as an example. You know, when those guys offer their opinions on things or their insight, that means more to me, because I know that they are connected. I know that they are, you know, well sourced, uh, that they're, you know, the, that they really know their stuff. So I want guys like Sam, Sam McEwen to, you know, to share opinions because I know I know how much work he puts into establishing those opinions. So, and I, I've tried to do a lot of the same stuff. I mean, I write a lot of columns, uh, much more column more columns now than than I used to. Um, but I I do that, you know, hopefully with with readers understanding that it comes with with a lot of meat behind it, and that I'm not just throwing stuff at the wall. You're not shooting from the hip, right? Have you
0: been a columnist your whole what tenure that just happened?
2: I was a beat writer. I was sort of, you know, on the, on a, definitely on the beat, beat reporting side of that line, um, until about 2009 and then 2008, something like that. Um, and then it's just kind of been a slow, slow transition, I guess. Um, you know, I, I still do, I still will write straight news stories sometimes, depending on the situation um, but but more often i'm I'm writing opinion some of that changed. I used to do a blog uh called Mad Chatter that would run oh, yeah, you don't do that anymore no, it's just it was I wanted to pursue some other things, but okay um I probably did that from starting in two thousand eleven and I think that's kind of where it changed the most where my uh my opinion became probably the the dominant part of my my coverage or you know was if you have like the, the the beat reporter sitting on one shoulder and the columnist sitting on the other shoulder uh the columnist eventually started to to uh overwhelm the beat reporter hey you, you talk about doing other things which kind of
0: segues to what i wanted to chat with you about next which was you've done some some massive projects in the last number of years that have been um, just excellent. And, and that's not just me saying that. I mean, you've been recognized nationally um, most recently, the 24th and glory um, multi-part piece. And before that, the homegrown Huskers piece, first of all, those are amazing. Second of all, like, how do you do that? Like, when do you, they're just so big, it boggles the mind. Like, how does, how do you do that?
2: Well, um, thanks for saying that. I'm glad to glad that you found some of that stuff valuable. Um, I think that, you know, I, have always, I think that the, the, the characteristic that I think is probably most important in journalism and the one that, that I is, is certainly most, uh, most prominent inside of me is, is just a sense of curiosity. And so, you know, I will go down rabbit holes all the time. And sometimes you'll, you'll, you know, you'll go down a rabbit hole and you'll find, you'll find just amazing stuff. Um, and I'll give you an example of the, that homegrown Huskers series, which turned into like a 10 part series that, you know, basically covered the um, Nebraska football's relationship with, um, with its, its backyard or with, you know, with kids in its home state and how that is eroded over the last 20, 25 years. Um, that just kind of started out as like a, Um, this is going to sound ridiculous, but there, there's a, a colleague of mine has a map on his cubicle wall in the office and he's from Indiana and he's, it's a map of Indiana with where every player uh, like all the famous basketball players in Indiana, where they come from. Mm -hmm. So there'll be like a, you know, there's a Larry Bird's face in in French lick and, you know, Steve Alford's face somewhere else. And, I always thought that was cool. So I always wanted to go back and like figure out, you know, okay, where do all the, where are all the famous Nebraska football players from in our state, like the in-state guys. Um, And, and in reporting that, you know, just sort of on a, on a lark, it was, it became fascinating to me um, how, how few, you know, how rarely Nebraska was still getting guys out of small towns. I mean, it was, I'm from a town of 400 people. Um, there's entire areas of the state that Nebraska has basically stopped getting players from. And I was just so fascinated by that. I mean, when you look at the history of the program, those guys are so critical, you know, from, from the Kelsey brothers to Matt Davison to Terry Keneally to, I mean, it's just up and down the line. Um, and and production had had essentially stopped, and and not coincidentally, had stopped uh, when the program hit hard times in the last twenty years. So, so you know, then the question becomes, okay, why? Why does that happen? And we were able to just kind of build, you know, build and build and build uh, a project around around these ideas uh, that I think. Um, I think says a lot about, you know, why Nebraska has struggled so much over the last 20 years, they basically stopped getting anything out of their own backyard. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, it's, it's rural depopulation and it's, um, you know, it's uh, diversity in the state and it's, you know, the concussion crisis and all sorts of things. And we kind of built, you know, one story around each of those issues but that's kind of how it starts. It's just like kind of starts with a question and you start exploring. And I've been really fortunate at the World Herald because you know we're we're pretty well staffed in sports. So they they give me freedom to go off on my own and and basically search and dig and see what I can find. And um hopefully I've I've rewarded their faith in that. Um my, my favorite one is is probably a, a project we did about Danny and Me and uh, mm-hmm. the Nebraska basketball years in the nineties that, man, I, at some point I want to get that into a book because uh, I, I think that, you know, the, that material is probably as, as associated with my childhood as, mm-hmm. as anything that I've ever written. I just Nebraska basketball in the nineties was, was one of the big reasons uh, I became who I, who I am professionally. And, mm-hmm. and it was, it was so much fun going back into that stuff. I I have, my memories of that era are so, so, you know, so vivid and so good. So is it Say, Are you working on a, are you just always working on a big project then? Is that- yeah. I'm always working on like five or six at the same time. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, I don't get anything done for a month or two months uh, cause I'm doing more daily coverage. Sometimes I'm just, you know, working on a Sunday story and, you know, again, things get pushed back. So, I've sort of benefited from being in one place for 16 or 17 years where, where I could, you know, work on that stuff slowly. And um, (laughs) it's, it's kind of like musicians working on songs or albums. I think you're just kind of, you're constantly working on something and and maybe it doesn't turn into anything and hopefully someday it turns into something, but it might be, you know, five or 10 years down the road. I don't know if I'll be here another five or 10 years. So I've got to get some of this stuff
1: you know, cleaned up before I go somewhere else. I can relate to that a hundred percent as a songwriter. There are song ideas that I've been holding on to since college. Right. And I just haven't found the right space for them yet. Or, you know, you get halfway there. I've got a song I've been working on since 2006. Yep. And I can't like, I love it so much, but I know it's not there. So I hear you. Well, And, and here's the other thing, Mike, here's the scary part those things become
2: more intimidating through time because you know, you've put so much into, you know, Mm -hmm. you've put so much thought into them that uh, this is the part where I really struggle. And there's some, you know, some semi-depression that goes into this, but um, these things have been in my head for so long that it's more daunting to try to put them on paper and actually finish them because um, that's where you know the rubber meets the road and you have to you know you actually it's a lot it's, it's easier to think about it in your mind and to you know uh conceptualize it and and think about it what what it might one day look like uh it's it's much harder to actually sit down in front of the computer and and try to turn it into you know something real so i hear you uh i i think the longer it goes on it's it's almost like the the more daunting it becomes
1: there, there is a common uh saying in music production that albums are never completed; they are just abandoned, so yeah. I don't know if you can relate
2: <laughs> yeah and i've always wondered I've always wondered how uh musicians i mean i'm I'm a huge Springsteen fan, and I've always wondered how what he feels like when you know he he he's singing a song for the four hundredth time, and surely you know. It might it might be a song 30 or 40 years old, and, and he might have decided 20 years ago that, man, that verse really isn't what I want it to be, and I feel like I could change that line and just make it a little bit better. And yet, they, you know, he's stuck basically singing it as it was 40 years ago. Mm. Uh, and and I, I, I sort of empathize with those guys because, as you just said, I mean, these things are constantly evolving in your brain, uh, even when you think they're done.
0: There's a great feature
2: on Weird Al's writing style
0: and and he just writes out every single rhyme possibility for every single verse and and he's like I'm going to be singing this forever if it's a hit and I'm writing it to be a hit so like it has to be perfect.
2: Yeah. No, and 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 that's one reason I think that writers uh musicians are in a very different position uh but writers don't like to go back and read what they've written because mm you know, they will often identify something that they would change uh, or that they hate. Uh, You know, you read it so much. I mean, I've, I read, you know, on the big stories that I've written or the big projects, you know, you read those things so much in production um, and then you just get to the end of it and you never want to see it again. So that's (laughs) some of the stuff I go back, I look at and, you know, if, if, if it, if you're fortunate, you look back and you say, oh, that was actually really good. Uh, sometimes you look back and you'll say, oh, man, <laughs> what was I trying to do there?
0: Uh, well, uh, Dirk, it's uh, conscious of your time here. It's uh, been a great pleasure having you on the show. Really appreciate hearing you. We're both longtime fans. Um, uh, Dirk's Dirk Chaitlin on, on Twitter, I think anybody who's listening probably already follows him. Um, and check him out at Omaha.com. Subscribe to the Omaha World Herald so we can keep doing this great stuff.
2: Thanks, dude Thank you guys for having me. Have a great day. And uh, uh, anytime you want to do it again, let me know. We will. Thank you. Okay.
1: Thank you. Thanks again to Mr. Chaitlin for joining us on the podcast. You can read his work in the Omaha World Herald and at omaha.com. We've placed a direct link to his profile in our show notes so you can check it out there. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to support our sponsors, Central Nebraska Buffalo and Realtor Monty Rohde with Pinnacle Realty in Lincoln. Until next time, on behalf of Justin, Go Big Red!